Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedi. This is a rare, rare kind of episode for the Paracast. Rare because most of the time, I never actually see the guests. I never see David. Of course, David is pleased with the fact that I never see him because that means he does not have to see me. The only time that I've done an episode of the Paracast participated in one where I saw the guest was when I did the first interview with Nicholas Redfern at the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas. But this is the second time we have a guest in the main master studio drinking his bottle of some unnamed liquid. We have John Burroughs. And he was an airman at the 81st Tactical Fighter Wing stationed at Bentwaters. And of course, we know what happened there. Mm. So we also have Peter Robbins, who will provide a lot of information, listen and ask the questions that David and I cannot think to answer. Or ask. Or as the case would be. Depends on what you want to consider. Anyway, John Burroughs, let's take this back through time, back to 1980. What were you doing, and when, and what happened to you? Well, we came on duty at 11 o'clock on Christmas night, and I was assigned to RAF Woodbridge that night on a police unit. I was law enforcement, and it was approximately 1.30 to 2 o'clock in the morning, when the on-site supervisor, which um, was Sergeant Steffens, um, was on patrol, and I was on a, in a different vehicle, and he met up with me and asked me if I wanted to ride around with him for a while. It was uh, Christmas night, you know, into Boxing Day, and so I got out of my vehicle and I went on patrol with him as far as we were out riding around, checking different areas of the base. And um, as we were driving down towards the east gate, um, Sergeant Steffens noticed something strange outside the base coming from the forest and he had just recently been assigned there i think within two to three months and i'd been there almost two years and he asked me if i'd ever seen that kind of lighting or anything like that off the base itself um from there we um left the base we drove down to the end of the eastgate road and i got out of the vehicle and the lights it was like, like I've described before, it was like different colored lights. I, I tried to describe it as like almost a Christmas display of blue, red, white lights. And it just didn't seem right. So we came back up to the gate and we called it in on the, the phone and it went from there. I have a real quick question that's going to sound a little odd. Okay. Sure. What, as you described the, the colors of the lights, did you by any chance happen to see colors that you would categorize as uncategorizable did you see colors that don't relate to the colors that you're familiar with um not no. but i know All it right. was the the thing was that what i've always had a problem with is i can't i can't define it as a craft i de- define it more as lights with a possible <laughs> shadow where when jim was there he actually from the very very beginning and he's been consistent about it through the years, was he felt it was a hardened craft. Mm-hmm. All right. The, the way these lights were cycling in colors, did there seem to be any order to the colors, or were they what, were they what you might categorize as randomly cycling? It, it, more like randomly. Okay. All right. Gene. See, he throws it into my lap. Let's go 
what happened next. Okay, from there, after I got on the phone, and, and it's been on different documentaries and stuff, I was kind of a prankster. The law enforcement guy didn't believe me. So he, when I cons consistently persisted that something strange was going on, he transferred me to CSC. Um, at that point, the guy back there knew me a little bit better is when I'm serious, I'm serious. He contacted, um, it would have been Staff Sergeant Jim Pennison at the time. He was the area security supervisor and um, had him come down to the gate um, to see, you know, to take a look at what we were talking about. And that's when uh, Jim showed up with his, his um, the airman that was riding with him was Airman Kabanisak. It's the best way I can remember pronouncing the name. And he could see the same thing that uh, uh, Sergeant Stephens and I saw. Um, he got on the phone and uh, talked back and forth with the flight chief and the shift commander and the on-duty CSC sergeant. And eventually they decided, um, and this is coming from Jim now and what I was hearing going on, because they made contact with Eastern Radar and allegedly there was something that was saw or seen on radar over the base at the time and then it disappeared. So after what was seen by the lights, what Sergeant Stephens said to Jim, what I said to Jim, and what Jim saw, they decided to let three of us depart off the base and go into the woods. And the shift commander made the decision based on the fact that possibly because of what was seen on radar and what we were seeing in the woods that something may have actually crashed out in the woods. So at that point, the three of us were allowed to proceed down Eastgate Road into the forest. Now, there's some confusion, and I think it's clear for us now, but I just want you to confirm it. When you went off base, you were told to leave your weapons, correct? Well, I'll explain that. Okay. It started out with... The security guys were armed with M16s. The law enforcement at the time was armed with 38s. We eventually switched over to the 9mm, but at that point we were not with 38s. The original decision was made because there is a status of force agreement with the English that we were allowed to, in between bases, because that's something that's been confused over the years, when we went back and forth between bases, because Woodbridge was a satellite base of Bentwaters, and we had no armory, we did go back and forth between the bases with our weapons. Mm -hmm. Okay, but at no point in time were we allowed to get off and use our weapons off base. So the decision was made to leave all our weapons at, at the uh, gate with Sergeant Stephens. Somehow, Jim had a conversation, and at the last second, according to Jim, he was told that I could go off base with my 38. That hmm. never got relayed to me, so I did leave my weapon at the gate with the two M16s, and we departed off base. But later on, when I get into the story, Jim actually still thought I was armed. Oh, okay. The reason I ask is that there have been some people who have tried to claim that this is uh, some kind of government psyops thing, that... Uh, you know, why else would you be asked to take your weapons and leave them? And it made sense to me uh, that you wouldn't be able to take your weapons off the base, that that would, that would not be something that would normally be acceptable, and, and not in this situation either. Because you, you didn't know what was going on in terms of the nature of what was being seen, so there was no reason to think, okay, these guys have to take their weapons with them, and it also would not have been legally workable. Right. And right. Th at that point... I mean, I should say at that point, but there was no threat. Right. I mean, there are there are certain times when if certain things are going on, you know, it could escalate, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a whole different scenario. But at that point in time, we were simply going out to look at and see what possibly could have ha gone into the woods. 
Now, also, just to clarify, uh, we're talking about here the the first night. This is a multiple-night event. And just to clarify, for, for me and others, John, we're talking about the first night here, correct? Yes, the first night of three nights in a row. All right. All right, please continue. Anybody else have any questions, Peter? Uh, no. Um, just keep going, John. Just keep laying it on us, because okay. I think at this point things are getting fascinating and more and more intriguing. So maybe just take the story step by step. Go ahead. Okay. From there, okay, it was Sarn Pennison, myself, and Airman Kabanzak. And Jim had just recently been assigned to Bentwaters, and so an Airman Kabanzak, I believe, was on his first two, first uh, cycle. So of the three, I had been there the longest. We drove down the Eastgate Road, all right? We made a right, and shortly after that, there's a logging road that went into the woods. We drove in. It was a pickup truck, too. You'll see over the years, they put us in all different kinds of vehicles. They'll show me standing on the gate. The gate was not open that night. The gate was closed. We would go down periodically and check it, okay? So there was no sentry station at the gate or anything like that. At that point in time, we drove down in a government pickup truck. We got so far down the road, we could no longer... We can no longer drive into the woods. All three of us departed from our vehicle, and then we started going into the woods. Okay, One of the things over the years has been talked about was we had radio problems. From almost the beginning, from the time we got out of the vehicle, all the way through the rest of that evening, there was intermediate radio breakups where the way it was set up, Woodbridge Base and Bentwaters Base laid almost, I want to say, parallel to each other, with Bentwaters to the left, and I think there was about a 15-mile, anywhere between a 12 and 15-mile break. Now, we were closest to the um, Butley, I believe it was the Butley Gate end of Bentwaters, and CSC was located out there, so there was a repeater out there. So we were actually closer to the back part of the Bentwaters base and where the weapon storage area was. We got into the woods. We could see the lights in the woods, so we started talking to, it would have been the WSA Tower. That was, and CSC was the two different radio you know, we were in contact with. We started going into the woods, and now this has been close to 30 years, so instead of trying to explain it, each fence we went over, we went over a fence, and we came into a clearing. When we came into the clearing, right in front of us was whatever it was that we had seen from the gate. And there's three different people that give three different opinions of what it was. Jim said it was an object, okay? It was an object, and he did a, a, a original statement, and the way he described it was a, like a triangular-type object. I could see some kind of object that I drew in my statement. It was more, it was like triangular, but it was a little bit different than Jim. It was hovering you know, off the ground a little bit. It might have been on the ground, but my object type is off shadows, not I can't tell you it was an object or describe what kind of material it was and everything else. And if I remember, because I haven't talked to Aaron Kavanzak since then, he, he was more in that opinion. Jim was in front of me, I was to his right, and Kavanzak was to my right. The story over the years has gone all different directions, but the initial I don't want to call it an encounter, but the initial time when we first came up on it, all three of us were together, okay, and in front of us was the object. It was there briefly, not more than a minute or so. It went up in the air and shot out into the distance. Any sound? 
No, there was no sound. There was a lot of noise in the forest. The animals made some different noises. There was also, it felt like some static electricity in the air where, and it didn't feel right. It was like something about what we were in felt different. It felt a little bit slower. Slower as in, a, did you feel like a difference to the consistency of the air around you? When you say slower, try to qualify that. It, it just seemed like things were moving at a slow pace. It, it just seemed like, and I've been told that's a natural reaction with adrenaline, which I'm not sure because I've been in other incidents like that and I've never felt that way. But everything seemed to be slowing down. It seemed like everything was moving slower. Everything was more deliberate. It was like everything we were doing was slower. It wasn't our normal pace is the best way I can describe it. Mm. Just out of curiosity, uh, do you happen to remember the frequency of those radios? No, I don't. They were Motorola's. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I have no idea. Okay, just curious. Proceed. Any questions, Peter? Uh, not yet. Well, let's go to the next step. Okay, from there, okay, it went off into the distance. At that point in time, we were trying to radio in what we saw. We were having trouble, you know, getting through to telling him that we'd come on to something. I believe, if I remember correctly, because I think Lieutenant Baran's statement said it, Jim did get through that we had made contact with something, and it was it appeared to him to be an object or a craft. Okay, because of the radio problems, as we move forward, Jim left Kabanzak behind Jim and I, and Jim and I proceeded for forward from there. We saw what appeared to be something in the sky. Um, up in the sky flying around and, and eventually it departed. Like it was like there and it's, and it disappeared. Like it streaked off. And that was the basis of the first night as far as, you know, what we saw, the initial contact and everything else. We were out there for quite a bit of time. I mean, probably over an hour, hour and a half. And then at that point in time, we, we came back towards the base. What were you guys saying to each other on your way back? I mean, what was the conversation like? Well, Jim is older. He was, you know, in his late twenties. I was a young airman. Um, my my problem was is no one would believe us. Um, trying to justify what we saw. Hey, people have a hard time now today realizing what we were going through at the time. UFOs were one of those things back there where, and I call a UFO an unidentified flying object. But it was immediately tabooed as aliens. It was immediately you were made fun of. It was something that you didn't really want to um, talk about unless you could prove what you saw. So, therefore, when we were coming back, we, we weren't sure what we were going to say or anything mm -hmm. like that. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. 
That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to John Burroughs. He was an airman stationed at Bent Waters, and we're talking about his encounters with the so-called Rendlesham Forest incident. We also have Peter Robbins, one of the co-authors of Left at Eastgate with Larry Warren. And right now we're going gently through the various elements of John's experience. We proceed, sir. So as we were coming back, that's what we were talking about. We then... We, we, we met up with the, the flight chief, both law enforcement and security. The, one of the things that was said, and the tower was, they, they claimed, and I say claimed only because that's what they said, they lost radio contact with us for over 30 minutes, and the tower operator made a comment that he thought he saw a beam of light shine down over the area where we would have been and that's the weapon storage tower, which had a clear view towards the area where we were at. And he felt he might have seen something come up in the beam of light. Weapons storage tower? Yeah. Describe that, please. It's a tower. They, it's where they store um, munitions. And that was actually located at Bentwaters. And, but the tower set, it sets high above the ground where they have a view over the storage area. And they also have a view over the woods, which they could see out in the direction of where we were at Woodbridge out in the forest. Got it. Thanks. Peter, you have a question so far? Nope. Just listening. Hmm. So relaxing to actually sit here and just talk. So from there, we went back, and it was getting close to relief time. We went back. Um, we waited for relief. Jim and I, I believe we went and sat down and had a cup of coffee. We Again, we were just talking about how far we wanted to push it, what we were going to say. We got relief. We went back to CSC. We met up with the shift commander. And he asked us what we saw. Jim explained to him what he saw, including it was a craft. I told him what I saw. Kabanzak told him what he saw. And the decision was made. We go out into the area where we were just to see if we could find any signs of damage or anything that happened. Jim has always said, and I would have to agree with him to an extent, we toned it down. We we weren't ready. We We didn't expect anything to happen out of it. We just figured we saw something strange that was unexplainable. And that we would go out in the woods, we wouldn't see anything, and that would be the end of it. I mean, at the time, I didn't know, but the colonel came up on the desk, found out that would be Colonel Hall, found out that something did happen. He asked to have it put in the blotter. The lieutenant didn't want to put it in the blotter um, because, again, we were off off base. From what I can gather, nobody was woke up or told about it, which is a little strange. So it was one of those things where we just went out on our own. We took a look. We didn't see anything. But when we went back out into the woods, that's when we found damage to the trees. It looked like something that sat down in the area we had seen. And now it went from one of those, well, we saw, I felt, I saw some kind of lights. Now we were getting into, well, maybe something actually sat down there and maybe there was something there. And now how do we explain what it was? How did it depart? Because back then, as Jim has even said, there was nothing that, that we could relate it to as far as, what we knew or had seen in the Air Force inventory or in the military inventory that could possibly have done what we had seen. 
John, when you saw this depart, how close were you, do you estimate, to the object? I'd say Jim was probably with less than five feet, and I was more, not more than seven feet from it. All right. So it made no sound. Now, I have a further question. Did you notice any kind of disturbance of air when it left? You know, like something is moving in front of you, and obviously you're going to either hear it or you're going to feel something in terms of the air motion. Now, you have to realize when we came upon it, it was like, it seemed like we were getting closer to something and we couldn't get close to it. Then, then it was there. And that was one thing of the story that I'll tell you when we asked about the weapon. Jim, when he was right upon it, felt threatened by it and actually turned to me and said, you know, fire on it. He, he actually told me, really? he screamed at me to open fire on it. And I'm yelling back at him, I, I don't have my weapon. You felt threatened, but but it was like you were in awe of there was something there. And it was like, like I told you, everything seemed to be going slow. And then all of a sudden it just, it was a blink and it was up and gone. So obviously he was afraid of this thing. He yeah, I, I mean, you would take it as that. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, yeah. How about you? I mean, what was your, where was your fear level? I, I don't know if I was totally afraid of it, but I was in awe of something was there. And uh, that it startled me. You know, you have one of those, whoa, you know, uh oh type of feelings. I know the feeling well. When this thing took off, did it go straight up? Did it go at an angle? It seemed like at the time it went up, straight up. And then as it went up, then it shot back out behind, from, you know, towards the back, towards the coast. Mm-hmm. All right. Please proceed. That was that was pretty much sums up the first night. Okay, so this is the first night. Right. Now, this proceeded further. What happened next? The second um, night. Do we have a second night of experience well, this year? Report this right? is how it played out on the second night. Um, I went home. I, I rode home with Jim. Jim Jim, and I lived down the street from us, each other in Ipswich. So we rode home together. Again, we talked a little bit about now we found out. Now we've seen some evidence that something was there. At the time, we didn't have any contact with the colonel, so no, it was kind of left up in the air what was going to happen or what was going on. It was our first day of break. It was a Friday morning, so we went home. Um, when I got home, I called my mom and my parents, my mom and dad, and I told them what I saw. And then my dad, basically, he'd been in the military, told me that the best thing I could do is not talk about it and leave it alone because if you can't explain what you saw, you're better off not talking about it. So I went home, stayed up a little bit, and then I went to sleep. And so it was later than normal when we got home because we were out in the, the woods checking the area. So it was early afternoon, and uh, I slept basically from then all the way into early morning, maybe 2 or 3 in the morning. All of a sudden, I kind of woke up, and for whatever reason, I felt like something had just happened that it was happening or it happened again. Like whatever it was we'd seen, it come back. So I got up, um, got cleaned up. Um, I didn't have a car, but in England you could hitch. So I got up, I went out, um, I lived by a roundabout, uh, I hitched up to the base, I got up to the base probably a little after 6 in the morning, I went up on the desk, and sure enough, as when I saw the desk sergeant, he made a little crack about whatever you saw last night was back tonight. He went into a little story about how they'd seen the lights again out in the forest, they sent the shift commander out, she'd went out into the woods, to see what the lights were again. And her vehicle stalled out, it quit running, 
whatever it was, some kind of blue light flew through her vehicle. She totally lost her composure as far as it upset her very much, and they ended up sending her home for the evening. I don't know that we've ever heard that detail. Peter, have you ever heard about a blue light flying through a vehicle? Uh, not until last night when um, I was watching uh, this DVD of uh, a lecture Linda Howe did with John's uh, assistance on this aspect of the Rendlesham incident, and she was talking about it. No, I was unfamiliar with that. Oh, all right. They've done a very good job, uh, Colonel Hall did, with the initial memo, which took everybody off the beaten path of like jumbling everything up if you read his memo it almost makes you believe like it happened all at once and the second incident was there was never much said about it other than i have over the years i've talked about even in the i believe it was the unsolved mysteries where i've said i've woke up and felt something had come back and i went back out but they even try to make it into that i went back out on the third night when it actually i went up on on the morning of the night of colonel hall's incident and at that point, I decided I was going to go ahead and go back out that night and figure out what was going on. All right, so when you went out, on. did you go out alone or did you have no, someone? No, I met up you? with a couple of guys I worked with on flight that were law enforcement. I went over to the dorm, um, told them it came back, and we all decided, we hung out for the day, but we decided, unbeknownst to everything that happened on that night with Colonel Hall, we had no idea that there was going to be another incident. We had no idea that they were going to be out there and everything else. We just decided we were going to drive out and go out into the woods and sit out there for a couple hours just to see if anything happened that night or we could get a better idea of our surroundings because, again, the very first time I've ever went out into the woods was that particular incident. So, again, I had no recollection of the woods or the surroundings, so we were even just going to go back out there and see if we could get a feel for the whole thing, you know, on a calmer type of, uh, you know, type of state. Okay. So at this point, did you see anything that second night? Okay. When we drove through the gate, the main gate at Woodbridge, the gate guard stopped us and told us they had people out in the woods, all kinds of stuff was going on and everything else. We then drove from the main gate down to the east gate where they had a mini staging area and we were held up there for a while. And eventually I, I was able to convince them to let me go down to the the first area where we were at on the first night where they had some light all set up. So just for clarification here, what we're talking about now is not the second night, but the actual third night. Right, the night that Colonel Holt was involved with, yes. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure that we have this chronology straight. All right. By the way, Peter, at this point, is there anything that John has said that at all is at variance with what you heard? Uh, no. John is just enriching uh, the accounts that, you know, have been around for years. And John's the expert because he was there. Uh, remember also that my entry into this was working with Larry Warren, who was a witness on the third night and who was not even on base the first two days and nights, so was unaware, even in that time, of what was going on. And I know, you know, over the years on and off, John and Larry have been in contact, but um, nothing that John is saying here is in variance uh, with what I've understood, just adding to it with uh, important detail. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, 
launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking with John Burroughs, who was one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham Forest incident back in 1980. What a way to spend your Christmas week, I'll tell you. And we have Peter Robbins, co-author of Left Eastgate. Now, between Larry Warren and John Burroughs, John, when we were talking before this interview today and in the previous conversation that we had, I gather there are some variances between what you remember about the incident and what Larry Warren has reported. Could you describe that? First, one of the first things, going back to my first night, there's been people saying that there, and even Colonel Halt went out as far as trying to say over the years that some people have said that we left somebody out there, period, we did not. And the second part was no one spent days in the woods afterwards. One of the fingers was pointed at me, and the funny thing is, which the story continues even after the three nights, they put me on the back gate for on a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It was my first three days back on swing shift because they brought it what appears to be a team in on Sunday night after the incident on Sunday or Saturday night and Sunday morning. And they went out into the woods and did some kind of a investigation, possibly recovering something out of the woods because at one point on the gate on a Tuesday night, something was lifted out of the woods and brought onto the flight line at Woodbridge. Um, lifted out of the woods. There was a, there was a something in an, a crate type of crate that was lifted by a helicopter out of the woods and onto the flight line. Um, I've had some contact with Colonel Hall over the years, even just recently, and he said at one point he was told they might have recovered a piece of a satellite that went down into the woods. Well, then, do you feel that maybe all this was some kind of conventional aircraft? Maybe it was a test aircraft? We're forgetting about the satellite because it sounds like you saw something that would have been in view a lot less time if it was a satellite coming down. Well, if you go back to the history on what the debunkers, I call them, have tried to say was we saw a Cosmos, a Soviet satellite burn up and enter over over East Anglia during our first incident, I believe midnight or one in the morning. Some of the people have theorized over the years that 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 we actually brought a satellite down, that we had the technology to bring a satellite down and it happened to come down in our area. Um, I'm not sure what it was they brought out. I'm just telling you what Colonel Halt, after I have had met people over the years, including the base commander at the time was a Colonel Ted Conrad. I met his son who was active duty Air Force and we had quite a uh, sit down talk about it. And Colonel Halt, after I mentioned to him that I saw something brought out of the woods. That's what he tried to backtrack and say was what maybe brought out. Even he didn't say that. He knew that that was what it was for sure. So it could be very well they brought something else out 
recovered something else out and it wasn't a satellite. Or they could have recovered something as a smokescreen. They say that about Roswell, by the way. They got the balloons in the office there. And those balloons were actually what was found in the New Mexico desert. It wasn't really a spacecraft. There's all twists to this. There was another incident three weeks later with an airman, Laplume, that was on the gate. And the guy that was with them was law enforcement from that particular flight. His last name was Palmer. And we've traced him down to, at the time, he was supposed to be a staff sergeant in law enforcement. And he's now, I, I don't want to say he's the commander of OSI at Pope Air Force Base, but he is the agent in charge, which, you know, the Air Force may have changed over the years, but he's moved himself way up in the OSI. And it's just strange that he actually was down there. And through emails with Colonel Hall, he has confirmed that Airman Palmer was working with the OSI at the time of our incident. Peter, do you have any questions about this? No, not at this point. Well, I, I think we need to, to kind of come back to that third night because John started talking about it and then we, we went a little off uh, off rail. So let's bring it back to that third night when you go down there, John, and you get back into the area that you had been in the first night. I had worked my way down to the area where they'd set some light alls up, which was close to the area where we had had our first encounter with whatever it was. Was it the exact area? I don't know for sure because people have asked me to go over detail on the trail. I'd never been in the woods prior to the incident, you know, and I'd only went out in the woods twice after that, the first night and the third night. So if I ever went back, I could try to walk people through it. But we were down in the area, allegedly, and they'd set up light alls. Describe a light all for people. It's a know. it's a portable light. It's 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 run by diesel. Um, it, there's two lights on it, and they use it on the flight light at night when they're doing maintenance on aircraft, and so they can work at night. And what they had done, and this is only from what I've learned over the years, there had been a decision. Now, depending on who you talk to, whether it was Colonel Hall or Lieutenant England, but at one point in time, they were watching the woods, obviously on the third night. Some activity was spotted. At that point in time, they brought some light owls out into the area. And what I was told by the gate guard, by the people at the staging area, both at the east gate and that, was they were hoping whatever it was would come back into the area. They would turn the light owls on and they could get a view of what it was. All right. Because there's, I've read accounts over the years that there was a sense that there was knowledge that this was going to happen again. And, and I, that seemed to strike me as a bit odd. It makes more sense that after two nights of activity, they said, hey, can't hurt to get some gear out there just in case, which is very different than we know they're coming back. We're in touch with them. We're getting ready for them. Well, not to get too far off the story, but a lot of people have assumed that possibly we, there was some kind of military activity going on and they staged the third night to cover for whatever happened on the first night and that certain people were in the base were involved and they knew something was going to happen so they staged the whole night my personal opinion is not just coming from at the time because at the time i was a very young airman had had spent very little time in the air force less than two years on active duty but i ended up with 26 years total i do not believe that anyone at the base level at our base level knew anything about what was going on at the woods in the woods or had any knowledge up until the third night now after the third night and with the team coming in then i believe it they people started there was more involvement and i believe our wing commander was involved at that point okay 
All right. Anything else about the third evening that you can tell us? Well, I, I, mean, I can go in from the time I got permission to go out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got permission to go out. Okay. Why did they give you permission? Did you say, hey, I want to go out? Or Here's, this what? is how it's played out. And the interesting thing was I just got my hands on a tape that, and believe it or not, it was Peter Robbins, uh, Larry Warren, and Colonel Hall had did an interview back on the East Coast. Over the years, Colonel Hall is adamantly denied first that I ever was allowed out into the area. And then I was able to break that down by on his tape. You can clearly hear a radio transmission saying that I have Airman Burroughs and two other personnel requesting permission to come out to your area. The voice returns back and it was Master Sergeant Ball saying not at this time. We'll let them know when they can come out. Okay. Colonel Hall then went on record and said, well, I guess we allowed him to come down to the staging area, but he never went further. On this tape with this interview, he clearly states that I was allowed to come forward with him. Okay. Mm. I worked my way out to the light offs. Now, right before I met up with Colonel Halton, his party was allowed to go forward. We had a strange incident happen where we had a blue light. They were talking about it on the radio. And that's something that that's covered. It's been it's been held for years, and I do believe Colonel Hall has his tape. Was he had everything on the third night, and I believe even our night it would have been recorded. The command post monitors all frequencies, all frequencies, law enforcement, security, fire department, air traffic control. They come, they monitor everything and recorded everything. Well, Colonel Hall had had it recorded that night. His call sign was Stopper. And he had everything recorded, all the radio traffic recorded. I got permission to meet up right as we were getting ready to move forward. A blue light, which I believe, and I only can say this, Colonel Hall on his tape, and he has described a blue light coming over the top of him, beaming the light down. I believe that blue light then proceeded towards us from after his little encounter. It flew at us. It flew past us where the light offs were set up. And the pickup truck was set up down there that they were using. It flew through the pickup truck and shot back up into the sky. As it passed the light alls, they could not get the light alls to work. The light alls actually came on and went off. So you're talking about a blue light on the third night that goes through solid matter in the same way that on the second night, there's a description of a blue light going through a car. Yes, it was actually a Jeep. The shift commanders used Jeep. a Jeep. And, right. and and I'm only telling you, it was put in the report, and that's you know what I was told. I had no witness to or was involved in the second, second. night other than right. what I was told. But, but you actually, this was seen, you saw this on the third night. Yes, I, the blue light passed us, went by us, and then shot through the pickup truck, and then went up back up into the sky. Okay, now, let's drill down and describe blue light. I mean, when you say blue light, we're talking about a spherical light of about what size would you estimate? You know, I've never been able to. It, it was much bigger than a basketball. I mean, it was, I can't really, there's no object that I can, you know, give it, but it was bigger than a basketball. Bigger than a basketball. Intensity of this light, did, was it like hot blue inside and then gradually graduated off to cooler blues on the outside? Did it it just like seemed like a light transparent blue. It was like you could see through it. Oh, you could. So it wasn't yes. like opaque. No, it was not. No, it was not solid. No. Any was there sort of a cone of light around it, 
Uh, does it seem to be emanating any kind of structure? No, I didn't see that. But if you'll go back all the way to the CNN piece that Chuck Carl did, Master Sergeant Ball was out there, said he felt there could have been something inside the blue light that could have been intelligent. Mm. All right. What was seen specifically, any idea what was seen that would convey the impression of intelligence? Sergeant Ball said it looked like there was something inside the light. I did not see anything in the light. Colonel Halt said it, it appeared to be under intelligent control. From what, what the lights were doing in the sky, it very well could have been. But I've always been one to say, I don't know. I only right. stand by that because I do not consciously ha had any kind of contact with anything. But you didn't get any kind of an impression from it. And that, that, not that's not from the conscious point. At, under hypnosis, there's a whole different story to it. Okay, We're going well, we to get into this hypnosis thing in a short time. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking with John Burroughs. He was an airman stationed at the Bentwaters Air Force Base and 1980 was one of the witnesses to the famous Rendlesham Forest UFO case. We have Peter Robbins, co-author, along with Larry Warren of Left at Eastgate. Peter, hmm. you've got to have some questions about Halt because I know that you've had some problems with his information. For starters, I think Charles Halt emerges as pretty much the most complex involved individual who we associate with these incidents. As John has pointed out, he was a deputy base commander at the time, considerably more experienced on location than Ted Conrad, who was more recent at Bentwaters. He approached this originally as a skeptic and then, of course, became fully involved in it as an eyewitness as somebody with very distinct impressions of what they felt, what they saw, what it represented, and has been somewhat forthcoming in those respects since his retirement in the 90s. Halt has also told different people different things at different times, and while I feel he's worthy of tremendous respect, he served honorably for over 20 years with the Air Force, he left with a fine record, but he was both a victim and kind of an official impediment at the same time, and I think continues to be so. When I first contacted Hall before actually meeting with him and doing this almost hour and a half interview in Washington with him and Larry, 
the first things he said to me were actually a bit shocking to me. Um, you know, you're on following a great story, but you're involved with the wrong guy. Um, Larry is wannabe. He wasn't even there. Uh, if he was, his quote repeatedly was, he's been meddled with. And when I pushed him on it, he felt that he had been meddled with by our government, intelligence sources, to appease his memories, if he had any. What do you mean uh, by meddled with? Well, that was Hall's phrase, um, that your mind has been screwed around with. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the eyewitnesses would fit into that same category, that their memories have been affected possibly by us and certainly possibly by them in quotes whatever these intelligences are larry john jim tennyson have all looked into trying to recover memories through responsible hypnotic regression i'd like to think that they all have a better picture of what happened to them still but to take this back to the baseline larry again was involved in the third night came away extremely disturbed from the way that the men were treated as well as to a degree some of what he had witnessed and when he left the service and returned to uh, civilian life was not adjusting well and that's an understatement you don't have to be in combat to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and I think a lot of the fine uh, men involved in this incident still are reverberating inside themselves from aspects of what happened to them almost 30 years ago now. Again, he left with an honorable discharge in May of 81, and by 82 was completely obsessed with this, uh, changing not in good ways, as uh, told to me by his family members, people that he knew when he was younger. He ultimately made contact with a uh, then fairly well-known and respected UFO investigator who was also a Connecticut, specifically Coventry, Connecticut, police lieutenant, and that was Larry Fawcett. Larry Fawcett was the one to do the first real interviews with Warren. The information that Warren gave them covered everything that he remembered in terms of who was involved, people like John and Jim and Colonel Halt, locations, times that he remembered to the best of his ability. This information was taken, and Bob Todd, who was working for CAUSE at the time, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, put it together in the form of a Freedom of Information Act request. That request was answered, I think about a year or less than a year later, with the release of this one single document, which we now call the HALT document, that John referred to later. I think most of us agree that, you know, Halt went on record with this um, two or three weeks after the incident, but collapsed incidents into each other, made the three days into two days. You can read it and say, my God, something really happened there, but good luck sorting out the actual accurate details. Now, when this story broke, it wasn't because of Larry Warren or Larry Fawcett. Fawcett had forwarded a copy of the HALT document, the single-page report, to a colleague in England, Jenny Randalls, who then, without permission or even the courtesy of telling them that she was doing it, sold the document for quite a hefty amount, I understand, 
to News of the World, the largest English tabloid. This is Jenny Randall's you're talking about here. I am, yes. Okay, so basically she did this without anyone's authority, approval, permission, or anything. That's correct, and I like and respect a lot of Jenny's work, but this was not an appropriate way to behave, and with the thousands of pounds that she made, she kept it all. As I understand, certainly uh, Fawcett or Warren or anybody else never got any of it. The point being that the story broke on the first Sunday of October of 1983 in the News of the World. Again, this is the biggest tabloid in the country, and within a month, the article had been picked up, parroted, distorted, clarified, interpreted in more than a 100 articles in the United Kingdom. And on that first day and following, Halt's name was the name of the most ranking officer associated with it. In a sense, I think Charles Halt has always really held it against Larry Warren that he outed him. There's no question in my mind that being identified as the lieutenant colonel involved in this story brought Mr. Halt a lot of attention that he did not want, should not have been subjected to, and you know, a certain amount of joking behind his back as the UFO colonel and things. And that that certain amount of animus um, has come back at Larry Warren repeatedly. I remember when we were in England in 97 on a 15-city book tour for Left at East Gate, and there was a fairly substantial television show that was being done live from London about UFOs that they had invited Mr. Halt to be a part of. And his um, terms were that he would do it, but not if Larry Warren were there. And we were physically kept out of that studio. We were not allowed to enter the studio. In the, uh, let's see, I guess it's, it's about half a dozen years ago or so when I approached the Sci-Fi Channel with the idea that they do a feature-length documentary on Rendlesham. I approached their director then of special projects, gave him a tremendous amount of original research, turned over contact information for everyone that I had, including people who I knew disagreed with Halt or took exception with parts of his account, and told Larry Landsman at the Sci-Fi Channel, when you contact Mr. Halt, don't be surprised if he says to you, I'll do this show, but not if Warren is involved. Who do you want, basically a colonel or an airman? And I got a call a week or so later from Larry Landsman saying, um, and he was literally laughing on the phone. He said almost word for word, he said what you said. And I said, well, how did you handle it? He said, well, I was quiet for a minute, and then I told him that we would miss his participation in the documentary. Then he was quiet for a minute and reneged and said, okay, I'll do it. But he was always filmed with Peniston and never with Larry, although they were all in the country at the same time. Paul told me to my face and Larry sitting across from him at the shopping mall across the street from the Pentagon, Pentagon City in the food court. And I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly. I can't say you weren't there. There were guys all over the place. I could only see within a certain range. It was obviously a high-pressure situation. And, you know, you may well have been. I just have to, you know, vet this as carefully as I can. And, and then when he retired from the service, told a number of friends in England who had questioned him after, I believe it was his very first lecture, a UFO conference, following his retirement, 
when they asked him about Larry Warren's account, he basically just said he's a wannabe. He wasn't even there. You know what? Well, we kind of covered this before, Peter. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, again, um, it's good to have background with with Mr. Hall. Yep. He is genuinely involved. He, there are things that he's never told us. There's a great deal, I understand, of the recording that he made that night that we're all familiar with, the 15 or 16 minutes or so, that he has never released from that recording. I, and I'm sure many other people, you guys included, would love to hear that. But he comes across as somebody who is having to play both sides of the story. He is an honorably retired uh, military officer part of the old boys network on a pension and there are certain things he can never talk about including um, the nuclear ordinance well the thing about this is with halt is he in a situation here where he basically has to spin this in the wrong way or is it better off just not talking at all john had a question here go ahead yeah. oh here's my take and i've had you know quite a bit of correspondence with him over the years if you look at even further uh, the wing commander, uh, General Williams, and him don't even get along. Uh, General Williams was just on the record maybe a year and a half, two years ago, where through a question of mine on an interview they were doing with him, my question was point blank, why, sir, or how, sir, could you leave us out hanging when the memo was put out? How could you claim you did not know there was a memo, or, and how, how can you sit back and say that you had no involvement? His answer back on the record, on tape, was, he, he never saw the memo. He had nothing to do with the memo. He never would have allowed the memo to uh, leave the base because there were things in the memo that we could not defend. Colonel Hall, over the years, like I said, where I was before, um, you have the fact that the, the, the wing commander at the time, General Williams and him, their stories don't match. Um, Colonel Conrad's come out and said that he was actually out on his front porch or lawn and could not see anything but Colonel um, Colonel Halt said that um, that he would Colonel Conrad actually told him he did you have the whole thing of the missing documents all the reports everything the audio tape that was recorded through the command post all has disappeared um, the fact that those are all controlled items Matter of fact, police reports are no different than the civilian side where they're controlled, they're kept track of. He's tried to pass it off as the fact that they just disappeared and one airman took them, which is not possible. Um, the fact that General Williams has tried to completely distance himself from the, the whole incident up into saying that he would never have allowed the memo ever to leave the base because there were things within the memo itself that they could not defend. Um, Colonel Halt then turns around and says that that the general knew about everything from beginning to end. General Gabriel, which was in charge of 3rd Air Force, came down. Yet again, General Williams tries to claim that he had no idea about the incident. But General Gabriel coming down and taking all the documents, he would have had to have been briefed by the general himself. Um, you've got the colonel bullying a captain that was actually went on record once saying that he saw stuff he actually drove somebody and the stuff was put on an airplane and the general flew it to Ramstein. Um, Colonel Halt has given out tidbits over the years as far as he's the one that opened up and confirmed that the C-5 came in on Sunday night and an investigation went on. He's talked about the weapon storage area to include saying on the record that some of the ordinance could have been altered. Um, so Colonel Halt has been, been very much 
back and forth on everything, you'll ask them point blank questions about how all this could have happened and not, and he'll say, those are good questions. I have no answers for you. Yeah, I agree with John. And in fact, um, another thing that um, Charles Hall told Larry and I, face to face, this with the recorder off, although for reasons I discuss in the book, I put it in the book at the end, that beams of light from these unknowns that were being uh, directed into the weapons storage area somehow managed to, his, his wording was, adversely of the ordinance, and beyond that he would not comment. Adverse to the ordinance, just define that again for our listeners who don't follow the military lingo as I don't. Yeah, um, essentially what he said, um, and to backtrack ever so slightly, uh, unknowns, UFOs, for lack of a more descriptive term, were observed over the weapons storage area, below which were stored, among other things, nuclear ordnance, nuclear weaponry. And Mr. Halt maintains, to uh, my satisfaction, and he looked at me and he told me into my face that somehow these beams of light, and who could explain it, penetrated down through the layers of metal, earth, and concrete, made contact with ordnance that I am assuming was nuclear um, and adversely affected it. Now, I think we can assume that it didn't adversely affect it in the worst scenario way or we would not have a part of England left. Or maybe they were peace-loving aliens. Well, um, they were ones who uh, did something apparently uh, that made these devices either inoperable or, um, again, I'm just making guesses, educated guesses here. But, yeah, his phrase was adversely affected the ordinance. Mm. It sounds like the book UFOs and Nukes by our friend Robert Hastings, where mm -hmm. he talks about actually disabling the functions of nuclear missiles. Well, this seems to be potentially an example of that, and Hastings' book is terrific, and he should get a lot of credit for it. Okay, we're looking at motivations here, Colonel Holt. Is he someone who's trying to get some kind of media presence, cash in, or find himself become the big expert on this subject? I, I personally feel, because, and I'll go back to all the beginning, to get this story out, okay, the final part, it, it, if you look at the history, CNN did it, then the next big piece that was done was Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries wanted to do it, and they had contacted me originally. I had somebody else that had contacted them if they were interested in our story. They immediately jumped on board when Colonel Hall had just retired, and he agreed to do the piece. They not only did they jump on board, but they agreed to do a half an hour segment, which was the first time that they had ever done a half an hour segment on anything. And they spent a lot of money to include bringing in um, the people that did Star Wars for the special effects. Um, right now, Colonel Hall's trying to put together a movie, and again, the guy involved will mm. listen to other people's opinions, but everyone feels that the only way this can go forward in the media is you have to have Colonel Hall involved. And to go even further, what Peter says about Larry being blocked, Colonel Hall's gone over the years and tried to keep me out of some of the stuff, including sci-fi. And he's gone as far as telling people he had no idea how to contact me. And fortunately for me, Jim Penniston and I have always been in touch. And Jim will then go forward and give the people my contact information. Sounds like he wants to be the go-to guy. We're going well, to break. Got, um, uh, to just take it sure. one step 
respond. Um, I've always felt that the reason that Jim Penniston never responded to my inquiries to just make contact with him, and this goes back years because we started work on Left at Eastgate in 1987. Um, I, I think that he, it, one way or another, kind of poisoned Jim Penniston's attitude about maybe my ethics or credibility or uh, Larry's, and um, it's a shame that this wedge has been driven. I'll tell you um, what, we'll explore that and also get into the hypnotic regression of John Burroughs, what he remembered before and after on the other side of the Paracast. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. We are back with John Burroughs, an eyewitness to the incident at Rendlesham Forest. Peter Robbins, co-author with Larry Warren of Left at Eastgate. You know what we're exploring, and I guess as we look at the motivations, we keep maybe we're missing a few details that maybe we should flesh out a little bit more here before we go on. Back to the third night. Is there something that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, we were left it right hanging at the point where I met up with Colonel Halt's group. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I finally met up with Colonel Halt, there were the, he had a group of people that were out with him out there in front of us that were doing their investigation as he put it in his own words, trying to debunk the whole thing. And as he put it, as things evolved, he became more and more clear to him that it, there was something to what had happened to us on the first night and the second night. When I met up with him, it always struck me that they were all in awe. They all had that look of no other words to put it. What they had just seen, they were having trouble understanding what they'd seen, what they had involvement with. And that goes back, not to get too far off track, with people trying to tell us it was the lighthouse, that we were out there you know, seeing a comet come in or anything else. What we experienced was real. Now, going to say that it was aliens or not, I will never go on the record as saying it was aliens because I don't know. And I, most of the people that were involved have never said it was aliens, not to cover up anything. To be honest, we don't know what we saw. But what we saw was real. What we were involved with was real. Whether it was from the future, the military, whether it was aliens or anything else is left to be out there hanging right now. I believe some people have a better idea than others, but I can't answer you to this day what it was. But they had the look of awe on their face. Like what they just experienced and what they had just seen was something that they have never experienced before in their lifetimes, and they had no answer for what it was. And Colonel Hall came up to me, and I, he basically, I, I apologize for pushing my way out, but I wanted to know what was out there. I was out there for a reason. He was surprised that I was out there. And we started, he started pointing out, and he pointed up in the sky, and we saw, he pointed to the blue lights that were still in the sky flying around. And the part about what he said about a, a beam of light coming down into the weapon storage area, as we were standing there, a, a, one of the blue lights did circle around over the area where the weapons were stored, and a beam of light did come down into that area. Now, 
through my investigations and talking to people over the years, including the tower operator that night, he said the light never went into the area itself, but it, it was just outside the area itself. The radio was going crazy with what was happening, what was going on. Shortly after that, in the distance, a large light or object appeared, and I, I, I always describe it as a light, not an object. It was off in the distance, okay? Colonel Halt looked at me and said, is that what you saw on the first night? And I looked at it, and I said, I'm not sure, okay, I, I w I'd have to get closer to tell you if it was what we came upon the first night, but it did, does not look like from the distance what we saw because it never was down on the ground or towards the ground. I asked to go forward, and he said yes. There was an airman there, or a sergeant at the time, by the name of Bastinza, okay? He had Bastinza come with me. We took Bastinza's radio, and we started going towards the object. As we were going towards the object and we were in contact with the tower, the object appeared to then start coming towards us. I've just recently spoken to the tower operator and he remembers this exactly as I'm, I'm describing it now. We radio permission, could we, get, could we continue on towards the object? We were given permission through him to go towards the object. Adrian and I started running. As we were running towards the object, Adrian went down to the ground. I went forward, and the last thing I remember was the object, it appeared, it was like a big white type light, okay, came over me, and that's the last thing that I remember. Wait a minute. Okay, so the last thing you remember, and then what did you remember after that? Okay, all of a sudden I was standing in the field, and everything was normal again. Because it was the same thing as the first night. As we got closer to the object, everything seemed, seemed like it was slowing down. Then all of a sudden, whatever it was, was gone, and I was standing in the field with Bastenza behind me. Mm. Okay, how long had passed? Did you look at your watch to see if there was any interruption? I, I didn't have a watch, but Adrian, now I had a conversation with Adrian after and on the phone a few years later. Adrian said, Whatever it was came completely over the top of me, okay, and and then I disappeared, okay. Adrian also has told me then and and later that as he was going towards me, he felt well. He didn't say he felt. He said he was pushed to the ground by something. Something made him fall down, and he was held and not allowed to leave the ground. He could not stand back up after he went down to the ground. So was there, there a was there a beam us. on him or something? He never said a beam. He just said something kept him from standing back up. Okay, so you see this thing overhead. It was out in front of me, and as I got close to okay. it, it came over the top of me. Okay, so this thing comes overhead, mm -hmm. and you suddenly realize it's gone. It's gone. Okay, right. so it's like time has passed, but it didn't look like any long amount of time. This is it, it, Like I said before, it seemed like it was, there was some missing time, and Adrian said at least 20 to 25 minutes had went by. Well, I guess we can call that missing time, can't we? Sure, you can. I just David. want to ask a question. Sure, John. David. Go ahead, David. You underwent hypnotic regression how many years later? I did not go under the first time until it was in 1988. Okay. So it's about eight years later. Yes. And right. the I reason see. why I went under was because mm -hmm. Colonel Hall had been passing around a story that I jumped up on an object and that I'd had contact, per se, with something. The only thing I ever remembered was I was getting close to something and then it was gone, okay? 
So to settle, to try to answer what had happened, I agreed to go under, and that's when everything else started to happen from the hypnosis. Everything else? Oh, there's quite a bit to it, yeah. Now, and I want to stress, this is all what came out under hypnosis. But the hypnosis itself goes step by step exactly what pretty much I remember, and a few things do come out that I don't remember, right up to the point of possible contact with something. All right, now... Before we go on, this is going to be an interesting thing to talk about in light of last week's episode where we had Bud Hopkins and Dr. David Jacobs talking about abductions. The person who hypnotized you, is it one person or several? There was, I, I've actually gone under three times, uh, so there's three different people that have done it. Were they involved at all in UFO research, abduction research, etc.? I can't answer, the first one, no. That was done locally here, and I, and I went under the first time just to have the individual see if they could bring anything back and give like have me describe what happened okay the second individual i i do not know his name it was done by an individual out of los angeles and i do believe he had interest in the ufo were these doctors psychologists what i the guy here was just a local guy that did hypnosis the guy out there i honestly don't know that much about him it was done in 88 i don't remember his name or anything he was an older gentleman i actually have the tape with the guy on it so that would be fascinating to listen to okay so let's bring back the memories okay i described through the incident what was going on there comes a point when i'm asked it's discussed what happened with as far as the light itself and the contact and that's where it gets interesting as far as we actually made some kind of contact with somebody from the future coming back and Jim has gone under also and through his hypnosis which he had no idea I went under or I had no idea he went under a lot of the same thing comes out as far as there was something from the future coming back he had no recollection prior to the hypnosis that OSI had ever interrogated me, been interrogated, it does come out under his hypnosis that he was interrogated. I have no recollection ever being interrogated by OSI, and at this point, under my hypnosis, is there any proof that OSI has ever taken me under or why I was interrogated? All right, now let's progress to the next step here. Okay, that 25 minutes of missing time, Right. what do you remember after hypnosis? Okay, under hypnosis, it appears to be that there was some kind of contact with something and that I was drawn towards it and there was a reason why that, that I was contacted and Jim was contacted and other people were contacted. They're, um, is, they're, they will come back at a certain point. It's very interesting under my hypnosis that certain things were talked about then. And at one point, it appeared to be that there was actual conversation going on with the whatever it was, was that there will be a point when they come back for a reason. Okay, now, whatever it was, was it a physical conversation, a telepathic conversation? It appears in your to be mind? telepathic, whatever we had contact with was energy, which if you want to take it, that's what the blue lights were. It was an energy source. What we made contact with something from the future, and it was energy. So something from the future as in our future? Yes, our future. And was there any, okay, well, please detail, like, what did this conversation, because apparently you, it's described that you were gone for like 20 minutes. Yes, it appears it was like a 20 to 25 minute, and again, 
I didn't have a watch on, but that's what I was told. There was like a 20 to 25 minute period of where when I was inside of whatever it was, uh, you know, I was gone as far as they could not see me for 20 or 25 minutes. Is there any recollection being inside a different space? Not consciously. I don't remember. I remember being there and then I remember nothing there. But the the hypnosis part comes out there was. So so there's got to be some more detail, though, from the hypnosis session, right? One thing that also occurs to me here is the force entity visitors you communicated with were they blue in your remembrance of them were they there, blues grays whatever it's blue and, and and again let me let me get very careful be careful careful with this there is no figure there is no like it's a blue or a gray or aliens or anything else it's simply a blue transparent light which is what we saw what i remember seeing and that's what comes out under Hypnosis. There was a, a triangle that in my last session that was there, and actually at one point there appeared to be some kind of face. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We're talking with John Burroughs, and he is someone who was a witness to the incident at Rendlesham Forest in the UK. We also have Peter Robbins, co-author with Larry Warren of Left at Eastgate. Okay, now, John, the face, what kind of face is this? It was just a brief face that was appeared right before the triangle 
actually had like a tube, it appeared to be like a, a opening, like a tube type opening that seemed to want to pull me into the tube. And it just seemed to be some kind of evil looking face. It, it, I can't give you, I can't take a picture and like do a photo lineup and say that's the type of face. But it just was a brief flash of a face that appeared to be very evil and very threatening. Okay, evil being the sense that you felt fear. Yes, they're all definitely in the hypnosis. Peter, you saw the hypnosis. Did I look pretty concerned? Yeah. My body completely and totally is just shaking. So what else comes out under the hypnosis sessions, John? Well, give me, I mean, like, what What are you trying to zero in on? Like, Are you told why they're at Rendlesham? Under Jim's hypnosis, they're back to fix the timeline. Under mine, it basically says that uh, there, there'll be reason for the contact, and that at the time, that's when I'll know. They didn't say when. They didn't say when. There's points where it, it tells you, or it appears to point towards this time frame now. Like, in other words, between now and like about 2012, 2015. We're getting back to that 2012 thing. I know. Right. But that came back way back in 88, way before all this Mayan calendar stuff and everything else came out. Okay. Were you aware of any of that stuff at the time? No. This is stuff that had never been. That's what I'm saying. There's some weird, strange things that came out back in 88, about 12 to 15, and feelings that I had. Um, it's even at the point where they talk about that there's stuff that's come off of the moon. There's been stuff that's, you know, there's been a, some kind of a base or something that's come out of the moon. Okay. Now, did all this come out of this one encounter, this brief encounter? Or are there other encounters that you remembered under hypnosis? No, it's just this encounter with the blue light and what it was and what the reasoning behind it. Okay, it sounds like they conveyed a lot of information during a very short time. Sounds like there's a lot more information there if it wasn't planted. And that's what I want to be clear on. This is all hypnosis. This is not something that I remember right. or most of it. After I've come out, it seems to be a little bit clearer. But that's something that we're trying to zero in on, on whether this was possibly planted, because the colonel has gone out of his way to try to say, which is another thing that doesn't add up, that Larry, Jim, and I were interrogated, but he was never interrogated, Master Sergeant Ball was never interrogated, all the other people that were involved in this never were interrogated by OSI, and they were all protected, but we weren't, which doesn't add up either. Okay, do you know of anybody else that was your crew who had or reported a contact experience like yours or similar or whatever. Jim and I, I believe Larry has stated something happened, and I don't want to go on record exactly, put word for word, but Adrian sends out with my conversation appears to have feels the same way. Peter, what do you think about all this? Anyone else report something like this that you recall? Number one, it's interesting to me that um, although Larry Warren did not undergo regressive hypnosis to try to recover some of his memories, from the third night and in fact the night after when uh, he was detained to put it mildly by officials and uh, held very much against his will and also has memories some very clear and some re recovered in his July 1995 hypnotic regression with Bud Hopkins uh, which I witnessed and of course was recorded that are similar to John's and Jim's, but one of the things that I think is so interesting is although Larry in no way during the regression recovered a memory related to the sources of all of this as being time travelers, that has been the belief, the feeling, and the opinion that he has maintained for years where I 
damned if I know. I mean, it's almost a moot point if we're dealing with beings from other planets, universes, times, dimensions. I'm less interested in. But he has always been quite clear that that is his feeling, which um, agrees with, with John and with Jim. Hmm. All right. Let us go on here. What else? What other facts do you remember during these regressions? Did it all come out, by the way, in the first session, or was it something that was developed over the various sessions with the three different people? It slowly evolved through the three. And the thing that always concerns people, of course, when we talk about hypnotic regression, how much the hypnotist may have influenced the memories. Right. And that, I mean, that is a concern. Um, the third one, no. She just asked me to go to a point and that's when everything just started flowing. The second one, again, I try to say this, it, it just appears at one point I am actually talking through whatever it was that was there. The guy had no control over what I was saying. Um, matter of fact, he tried to interject certain things and it was clearly stated at the, some points that, no, you have no idea what you're talking about, you're wrong. One of the things that, like I said, I'm working on is to try to find out if it was planted or not. You know, there's a big question, and I'm being honest, whether or not we were brought in, interrogated, injected, but that's another whole story. Why were we brought in? That raises another issue here, that what right. you remember may be military intelligence. It very well could be. I mean, there's no, sure. there's no, that's why I've been very careful about talking about this over the years, and I want to stress that again, there's something there. Something happened to us. We have all having the same type of memory, or Jim and I are having the same type of um, fallback into it. Um, um, whether or not it was planted or not, it's another story. But then again, why would they plant that on us? And you know, and that—that's a big question right there. Why, what were they doing? What was going on out there that would cause them to bring us in and plant this stuff in our brains? If—if if that's what had happened. Well, it sure wreaks havoc on your credibility for people who don't believe this kind of thing. Well, that was something that was my concern over the years, and at this point, I don't really care. And what I mean by that is, I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm going to allow to come out what comes out in their hypnosis. It's up to the person to decide what they want to believe or not. I'm not going to try to make you believe it. You can decide on your own. But something happened to us. And that is the $20 question to this day. What did happen to us? And what are the effects on us? We've all had physical problems. Our government's left us out hanging to dry. Physical problems, what sort? Um, I, Jim and I, and I believe Larry all had vision problems. I developed yeah. a heart murmur after the incident. My mouth turned white. Colonel Hawk continues to stress that there was a high radiation count out there, which I'm no expert on. I didn't take the readings. You know, I have no way of getting into if they wrote them down or whatever, but he stresses that whatever whatever we encountered the first night was a high radiation. I know for a fact Jim and Nevels are both trying to go through the VA and get get disability through the government for radiation and post-traumatic stress. So evidently, from what I've been told, Sergeant Nevels has had a problem with this, and he was out there on the third night with Colonel mm -hmm. Hall. Good luck in getting that. And these were his words. He filed, a com he filed it, put it all together. They asked for no supporting documentation, and they were reviewing it. We got room for a comment. Go ahead. I, I just have to interject here. While the whole paranormal aspect of this story and the other intelligences and what happened and what did John and Jim and Larry and the other people involved experience, I find myself kind of reverting back to a primary emotion here that not only got me involved in this story to such a degree that I stuck with it for almost 10 years to the exclusion of everything else in my life to help one of the witnesses produce the book that we did. 
I, I'm just infuriated. John and Adrian Bastinza and Larry Warren and Jim Peniston all joined the service for the right reasons to serve their country. They were treated awfully. And officers like Charles Hall, again, uh, it's a complex situation, but I think just to cut to it, they should have watched out for their men better. And here we are almost 30 years later with these men still struggling with what in the name of God happened to them when they were in the service in December of 1980. And it's infuriating. And I, I would love to see a situation where all of the witnesses that were willing could be brought together and have some kind of open forum on this. It's never happened, in part, because wedges have been driven, mistrusts have been encouraged, misunderstandings have been enlarged. The late Graham Birdsall, one of our best contributors, um, uh, the editor, publisher, and founder of the old English UFO magazine, a wonderful conference promoter, had wanted, ultimately, to bring all you guys to England and have a conference around this with you. Not even people like me, even though I'm kind of an informed outsider from years focused on the case, but you guys who were involved. And, and of course, Graham died and it never happened. I, I would like to see at the least, you know, you guys, um, Gene and David, continue to bring on Rendlesham Forest witnesses. I'd love to hear a show with Larry and John. I'm just left... I mean, you know, after, uh, for me, I've been involved in this since 1987, and I'm still obsessed with it. I am angry as I can be, and all I want to say is, you know, John, thank you so much for your service to your country, and how terrible it is that you and the other guys have been treated like this and left out to hang. Yes, there is a compelling mystery here, and it's a huge mystery, and we should all be able to know more about it but in the human moment for me i'm just enraged um you should never have to be struggling with this stuff at this point in your life so many years later the natural detective in me you know can sort of split off and get a little dispassionate and rub my chin and say this is fascinating and it dovetails with this and what i learned about adrian and bum, bum, bum. but it comes down to a very human story and it, it is one that i i, I find I'm still I'm driven by and will continue to do all I can to help sort it out. But, you know, God bless you. And, uh, again, thank you for your service to this country. Amen. Thank you very much. We, John, I want to ask you a question quickly. You mentioned your, your mouth went white. Um, we're talking about where the inside of your mouth became very painful and was looked all white? No, my gums turned white and they were bleeding. And my eyes, I got sent to a specialist at Wolford Hall at Lackland Air Force Base because the interesting thing about it is, real quick, is when this all broke, I got immediately got assigned to Korea. I got orders I could not get out of, and I was having physical problems, and they tried to delay my orders, including the doctor down at Wolford Hall, and they, were, they weren't allowed to. I had to, I had to proceed over to Korea. They, at the point when the story broke originally on CNN, Colonel Halt was over there, General Williams was over there, I was over there, and Peniston was hit away also in Europe. We were unaccessible to uh, being interviewed or talked to. Uh, how long after the event happened were you sent to Korea? I was sent in, let's see, 84, if I remember right, because everything got hot and CNN started looking into it, which is another whole interesting facet in that part alone, what the way they were handled and the way things went.
Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Brad Steiger, and I'm in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Join us as we explore new dimensions of thought. We're talking mm-hmm. with John Burroughs and Peter Robbins. Now, we should point out also that you're not an old man. No. So this happened 29 years ago. You were barely out of the teenage stage. I just was going to be 20, yeah. Or just I turned 20, actually. I turned 20 in 1980. So basically you were a kid. Right. Okay, kid, you enlist in the military to further your education? I just wanted to get out. The The economy was bad, just like it is now. There was nowhere to go in my hometown. I wanted to get out, see some of the world, get a training. You know, I enjoyed... uh, I was interested in being a police officer, a canine, and uh, I joined the Air Force and uh, got sent over to England. And there you go. Now, your eyes today, you're wearing glasses. Right. Is that a result of this? Well, no, my vision has just gone bad since you know early 2000. But my problem was I was seeing little white specks and having, it was kind of like my eyes were almost coming fading in and out at that point. And they, they never could figure out what it was, other than the doctor felt some of it could have been from the heart murmur that I didn't have when I came in the military. And when they found it, they were shocked. And it appears based on, and I've been told that you can go and actually find out through your liver that we were all exposed to some kind of radiation. One of the um, official Air Force documents that we have of Larry's, I think it's called Air 490, if I'm wrong, the number's off. The document is reproduced in our book. It's essentially a medical appointment form. Larry reported immediately after the event that he was having problems with his eyes when he finally uh, was um, had his appointment I think in early February of 81 at the Lincoln Haith Clinic he was told and it appears on the form that he had suffered optical retinal burn exposure and this is something that certainly he did not have when he went into the service it would have been picked up in his Air Force physical. And Wolford Hall one of the first things the doctor asked me was had I been exposed to radiation at that point in time, I told him no, because I did not know I was. I mean, the radiation came out years later. And if you look into it, Nick Pope has a document, which if you look at the British side for years, they declined or they said there was no evidence on file. And then when they finally did release the files over the years, that something they didn't look into certain things and certain things didn't add up. And Nick Pope has a document saying that we were exposed to radiation. Now, have you undergone any extensive testing to see if you have any residual effects of all that? No, I mean, that's expensive, and you can't go in with your health care and say, I need to have me, I've checked. I've checked into the fact that I that it can be done, and that was one of the things that I would like, kind of feed off what Peter said. I would love to get us all in the same room or in an area. I would love to see us all medically tested and looked at. 
And I would love to go face to face with some of these people that come out and tell us it was a lighthouse. I mean, I think this case deserves getting us all together. And I mean, I know Jim and I've met. I'm hopefully going to meet with him this summer again. I go back. He lives in Illinois still. Uh, I'm very close to think I can track down Adrian again. Um, but I would love to get us all together and get to the bottom of this. I think the reason why the colonel doesn't want us together is because, I mean, Honestly, I understand if he was given information after the fact, if there's stuff that the government doesn't want to come out, he's not going to be allowed to talk about it. I mean, that's something that I understand. But the problem I have is let's be honest about what happened. Let's be honest about who was there, what happened, what went on. And then if he can't talk about what what he knows, I'm fine with that. But stop muddling the waters and come clean on what the people that were there and what they saw and what went on allow us to speak, allow us to all get together and be honest about what you can talk about. Okay? I couldn't That's agree my more. problem with this, with him and what he does. John has absolutely hit the nail on the head here. The primary uh, goal that we should all have is to bring as many of the witnesses together as possible and let them, in their words, give us their testimony, impression, memories, etc. I also wanted to add, to follow what John had said about, you know, follow-up medical testing, Larry's was married a few years after uh, the, um, the incident, and his first wife was an administrator at a hospital in Connecticut. And once again, he was having eye problems um, that we associate with this incident. And she set up an appointment for him with a clinician in the hospital. And after doing whatever tests they did, the clinician asked Larry if he had ever been exposed to a radioactive source, if he had been in Vietnam. And Larry looked at him, and he writes about it almost jokingly in in the book, just, you know, how old do you think I am? Of course I wasn't in Vietnam, but yeah, I may well have been exposed. Mm. Oh, boy. It's maddening is what it is. Um, I, I would love to see one of your listeners who is independently wealthy step forward, give us a grant and allow these to proceed. And, John, when you do speak to Jim and to Adrian again, please let them know um, how much I admire them. Send them my best wishes and tell them if there's anything that I can ever do for either of them, all they need to do is let me know. Okay, well. It also sounds to me like we now have a mission on the Paracast, which is to uh, get these guys together, if well, nothing you can else. Do it. Sleep? Yeah, virtually. Uh, maybe we'll need to do an extra long episode and uh, have everybody sit down and talk. In this case, I can speak for Larry, even though he's been an expatriate living in Liverpool, England since 2000. Um, if it means being up in the middle of the night to do a show with you guys, he's there. No, no question. Well, I'll tell you what, we can call anybody anywhere in the world, no problem. We're happy to put them all together in one virtual room and kind of settle things out. Nice to get this Halt guy also on to find out just what his motivations are. He's not going to do it. I can guarantee you, based on the discussions we're having here, certainly Halt would never come on a show with all these fine gentlemen. That's not going to happen. No, not at all. Uh, Getting He might. He might be willing to do a, sh- a show with you two after responding right. questions that you had called from having the other guys on an interview sessions. Right. The other mission would be to find a medical practitioner out there amongst our audience. And I know we have physicians who listen. I don't know what kind of resources they have. But maybe one of them can perhaps 
do something about the situation and perhaps arrange for the proper testing of these gentlemen because if they did suffer radiation poisoning you know down the line this could mean a lot of complications and who's responsible do you go back to the va and say hey i suffered this fix it one of the other interesting things is they got a u.s senator involved in this years ago he's out of nebraska unfortunately he's passed away but his name was senator exxon and he was really going after this case hard and then he had a little conversation with Colonel Halt, and all of a sudden he dropped out of the picture. He stayed out of this. I underscore that. Um, I agree 100% and cover Senator Exxon's correspondence and left at Eastgate. And yes, after that conversation, he was not forthcoming anymore. Hmm. And I think the best thing to start with would be to get, a, get the, everybody but the colonel in and let them tell their stories. I think at that point, it would be up to him whether we could then take it further and put us all together, where we could do it more of like a, where you put, I don't know if you want to call it a documentary, but you could put us all in a room. And I think it would help, too, like you said, if there's some doctors out there. I'm sure we, if, if you could come forward with proof that we were exposed to radiation, our eyes are damaged, and everything else, that, that would force the hand a little bit further. Because... Colonel Hall's last job, he worked in D.C. at the Pentagon. He worked for Dick Cheney, and he had a lot uh -oh, to do with the uh -oh, Inspector General. Uh-oh, wait go. a minute, wait a minute. He worked for Dick Cheney? doing His last job was he worked in the Inspector General's office under Dick Cheney. <sighs> oh, my God. John, uh, just to get us back on, on track with the, with the event real quickly, because we don't have much time left. Okay. I'm curious about something. After, because I don't know that we actually finished off the third night, because basically we went off into this tangent about your, your hypnosis, but now let's come back to the very end of the third night. Okay. Which is that you find yourself now back in this field. Let's, what was the rest of the evening? What happened? After after that was over, we just went met, back up and met with the party. But Stenz and I had, like I said, the conversation about what went on. At that point, it was a night. I mean, it was the end of the night. I went back. The two guys I was with who got held back in the area with the light offs, we got in the car, and uh, I ended up going back home. And that was the end of that night. All right. So then subsequently, two questions. Were you in any way debriefed? Were you told not to speak? Quest part, question part A. Question part B. What was the chatter amongst your, your compatriots there? I mean, Okay, the first part, I wrote a statement, and I was told to only write the statement on the first night, which I did, which is on public record. I got called in on my first day back to work. I met with Colonel Conrad. We briefly went over the statement. The shift commander and the uh, base commander both believed something happened to us. The um, At that point, which there's even, like I said, I talked about something being recovered. There's another whole aspect about a C-5 coming in, people out in the woods, stuff being lifted out of the woods that we haven't even discussed yet. Very little was talked about, and I tried to, I tried to get people to understand. 1980 is a whole different world than it is today. You didn't talk about UFOs because UFOs were immediately put to aliens. Back then, they'd make fun by putting these guys in these little green saucers and everything else. And like Jim and I both said, this could be career breakers as far as being labeled like the colonel was eventually, the UFO colonel. What I found over the years was when I finally talked about it was more airmen came forward and talked to me about their experiences of what has happened to them. And they totally, the people that have had experiences as far as weird things have happened to them around weapon storage areas, totally understood what I went through and wanted to talk about their stuff. 
Mm. Peter, you had something to say. I felt it. <laughs> yeah, guys, so much. And we're coming in toward the end of our time. I feel like we're having a missing time experience here. There's just so much to cover. Yeah, Halt, for me, um, again, is not going to uh, be forthcoming in a number of ways because he's not able to. Larry Warren, for example, left the service not long after this incident. It, it upset him tremendously, and he left, of course, without a pension or, you know, obligations, so to say, to the establishment. I genuinely continue to feel the most important thing we can do is bring these men together. And I'm going to be seeing Larry in September speaking at a conference in Liverpool. Uh, I'm going to talk to the organizer there to see if next year's conference, if it continues, can be the one devoted to this and that they can put their money and their energy into bringing you and Jim and Adrian, if he could, would do it. Adrian has uh, been very disturbed by what happened. He is a central player in this. He seems to me like a, a very decent guy who, like all of us, is over his head in this and whose family has asked him also not to uh, become publicly involved. I think that this could be the case, to use a dispassionate word, to break this subject wide open. If we are able to follow it through to logical conclusions, with actual credible witnesses who were involved on the nights in question and that nobody's going to do this for us and we need to do some brainstorming on best ways to make this happen. Uh, I can't think of anything more important at all in the field of UFO studies than to trying to uh, make this case clarified and to bring together the men who were involved. This brings us, I think, to an obligation on our part to try to continue to run episodes and present information. I mean, people continue to talk about Roswell, and I think most of the information about Roswell has been written already, plus or minus, but this particular case, there's so much out there, and we haven't explored it. Now, just to add quickly, um, in the case of Roswell, literally, all of the principles are gone now. It happened in 1947. This happened in 1980. Literally, all the principles are still with us. If mm -hmm. there were such a thing as a, a reconvened congressional panel on this subject, witnesses could be subpoenaed. It's extraordinary the number of original players that are available that those of us that have been involved in this case have been in touch with over the years. I'm sure many of the folks that John has spoken with over the years under the right circumstances might be willing to participate in a respectful forum like this. And I'm sure many of the witnesses who have come forward to me during the course of working on the book and since would feel the same way. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. 
That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have John Burroughs. He was an airman stationed in Rendlesham Forest, one of the witnesses to that amazing UFO encounter. Also, we have Peter Robbins, co-author of Left at Eastgate. John, we focused on this narrow group of people. What about the rest of the people of the base? Any of them witness or see anything or talk about anything? Well, you can have the people that were involved that wrote the reports, which has never been you know, has never been pushed. There's people that type those reports, those people that know what was put in those reports. You have the tower operator that was involved in the incident both nights. There's so many people that that know what happened or have heard pieces or listened to the radios that went on, even up including the guy that was in the command post that night. I mean, there's a lot of people that you could put together that could put this, I don't want to say to bed, but could, could give you a really good timeline from beginning to end. And fortunately, it's taken almost 30 years, but we finally have the timeline right. I mean, finally, it's taken almost this long to get the timeline and the dates right. Quick question, John. Uh, Based on what you may have heard at the base subsequently, is there any potential that there were photographs or film footage shot of what happened on the third night? I know a couple people took some pictures. It's stated that they went to the photo lab and they came back and um, they came back white. Um, I know there's an individual that I've been in contact with, Mr. Hastings, that took some pictures of the site, the area where the tripods were and the um, plastic casts were taken afterwards. And he had some weird, like, almost it looked like it could have been radiation the way his pictures were done. And I believe he still has the pictures to this day of the site itself. But I do believe there's probably pictures out there. I don't believe there's motion picture. I was out in all the areas, including with Colonel Hall's party, and at no time did I see a video camera. And back then, it wasn't like these little portable ones. You would have had to have a a set up. Was there maybe something brought out to the light alls over in a corner that I didn't see? Possible, but nothing came that close to the light alls to actually film it. So, Peter, have you ever heard of any footage uh, shot that third night or any photographic evidence that might have gone missing? Absolutely. Larry has very clear memories on the field, number one, of seeing two Woodbridge police officers, one with a uh, SLR Nikon-type camera taking pictures. The camera was then confiscated by Air Force personnel. A brief disagreement ensued, but the camera was confiscated. But that there were Air Force personnel on location where Larry was on the third night that were shooting it with film cameras and with a video camera, which, as John has said, was very identifiable at the time. They were huge compared to, you know, the video cams we're used to today. So my feeling is I have put Larry through the ringer for this on years, um, and he's blown his top at me a number of times for asking the same question ten times. But I am convinced that his memory of seeing uh, cameras on location on the third night where he was at that part of Cable Green, the farmer's field, are accurate. 
which leads me to deduce that there may be footage. We understood from the CNN reporter that had covered it that had asked the airport for their big special uh, that John was referring to, which, by the way, was the first CNN news special in 84 and done innumerable ones since, that, yes, there was footage taken, but that the film all came out fogged and uh, was of no use. I don't trust that any more than I trust a number of things that our government has told us about this subject. All right. Now, you don't recall seeing any cameras, you were saying? There was definitely still pictures taken. Okay. That part, no, I don't, you know, the, the cameras itself, I, I, I never saw. I mean, one of the explanations could be the radiation caused a lot of these pictures not to come out. I do believe there either has been a picture circulating or it's out there of a picture of someone actually snapped what could have been one of the blue lights itself mm. in the sky. Yeah. Okay, but nothing that's been publicized that's available. Just a few pictures that were taken of the site where we were the first night. There were some pictures out that have been circulated of that, but nothing of what we saw. Peter, any hope that Freedom of Information Act, supposedly a little bit more liberalized with the Obama administration, liberalized, will that mean that maybe you could get more information on what happened here? I'd like to think so, but I think that's the optimist in me speaking. The nuts and bolts on this wonderful law have been increasingly tightened from its inception in the Carter administration, certainly through the Reagan administration, with certain caveats and complications added, despite our current president's open-minded stance in many respects, his intelligence, his uh, reflective abilities. I think that this is on a need-to-know basis, and certain presidents, as far as the forces that be, need to know. Other ones don't. Other ones are given just enough information, I feel, to let them know that they hope that this doesn't blow up in their administration or it's going to be the biggest can of worms in history. And so they do not do anything to move forward on it. I also feel that if anything's going to happen in the Obama administration, it ain't going to be for a while for him to have his name associated with UFOs at a point when he is readily criticized for putting mustard on his hamburger instead of ketchup would be some kind of political suicide. A year, two years, three years from now, if he's reelected, maybe. I don't think the Freedom of Information Act law is going to be of direct assistance to us in moving forward on this. I hope I'm wrong. Now, one other thing I'd like to add to this that you could run into a serious problem with is I firmly believe, from my experiences of 26 years in the military, that some of what goes on is military involved, and I, whether it's our weaponry, what we're working on, and everything else. And if it's involved, whether we're talking about something from somewhere else is involved or whatever, you're tying up a whole thing of national defense. And people have to understand a lot of this stuff, whether you like it or not, and whether you agree, we've elected these people, we've allowed them to make these laws, we've allowed them to lie to us, manipulate us, and control us, is the fact that they're trying to keep things secret from other governments and other uh, uh, other people that could do you could use it. So you're, you're tying up a lot of stuff, but I just have to believe that whatever happened to us 30 years ago, unless it truly is something from the future or alien base that they would need to keep this classified this long. Unless there's some external event that would make it happen before then. Or it could open up a can of worms right up to today. What about the British government? Because this is on their territory. <laughs> Any hope of getting any information from them, Peter? 
Well, as most of us know, uh, Her Majesty's government's Ministry of Defense is now in the early phases of posting declassified UFO-related documents on uh, an official ministry website. Uh, Nick Pope has told me that he feels that it may be as many as seven to 10,000 pages of documents that are being declassified. Uh, some of the ones that have been posted already do relate to uh, official interest on the part of Her Majesty's government about Rendlesham, but I don't think we can expect to see any real smoking guns uh, appear in these postings, the same way that um, while the French and the Belgians and Spanish and Argentines and Swedes and Danes have also done these declassifications, material is being withheld, and understandably so. I also think that Her Majesty's government was lied to by us about some of the particulars and basically went with it. And part of their embarrassment is simply that this happened on their soil, but the Americans controlled the flow of information, and they were never completely, at least as far as I know and at the lower levels, never really uh, dealt with honestly on this as well. Makes it complicated, so complicated getting all this information together. Now, after all this time, and we only have a few minutes left, and as we've all observed, we're going to be doing more shows about Rendlesham, get more of the participants available virtually, physically, whatever it takes. John, as you look at it now nearly 30 years later, is it from a future time, a military experiment, E.T., interdimensional you've looked into this subject what do you think well truthfully you could put it all into one big one big nutshell it could be all of the above i mean if you look at the area they developed radar over there if you looked at cobra mist the russians and what they had going on over there at the time woodpecker and some of this other stuff the tesla ball the the ball of energy that the russians have worked on it could have very well been a Russian military exchange or something going on, uh, military testing going on. Um, we could have brought down one of their satellites. At that point, something with what we were using or working on could have opened up some kind of vortex and something from the future could have come back because what we were doing, which clearly came out under hypnosis, what we were doing was causing problems that were going to be having to be corrected because it was causing to cause problems in the future. So it could be a lot of possibilities. It could be a lot of things put together, which just on the surface, why would it be the way it is where it's still to this day being held back? There's documents that they're not going to release. There's things that aren't going on that aren't being allowed to be said. Why would all that be going on on an incident that happened almost 30 years ago? And if there was nothing to it, why would you go through all this fuss and bother? Right. And why would it take so long to keep it? Because it's been a systematic cover up, starting with the memo all the way through. It's been a cover up. It's been a manipulation and cover up from the very beginning. And why would you go to that extreme? Is it a bunker, say, over a lighthouse or a planet in the sky? Why would it stay to this day the way it is? I think John is absolutely right. And just to add to the mix, this part of England, Suffolk, East Anglia, has a long history of mythology, lore, paranormal activity in the 20th century, uh, weapons developments and tests. Radar was perfected less than 15 miles from 
the sites involved in the Rendlesham Forest incidents. There's major NSA activity in the area. So it could be any and all or some of the above. Uh, it's like trying to undo a Gordian knot. The interesting thing is two things to that. NSA actually had a site out there on the nest at the time of the incident. Cobra mm. Miss had been shut down over, I think, about 10 years or, I don't know, four or five years before. But the scientists that were involved were moved to Bentwaters. There was people involved with the Marconi Company, which is a top-notch defense company, or was at the time, to include some scientists that died in mysterious matters that had involvement with Star Wars, that had involvement with UAVs and all that other stuff that could very easily tie in. you got to remember... The beams of light, could that have been something being beamed down by us? You know, could that have been some kind of laser technology? Could have been. There's a whole lot of stuff involvement that at the time I would not have never believed possible that we had. But through my investigations and through my work and research, I'm starting to uncover stuff that we had in 1980 that people would not believe that we had. And what's that tell you what we've got today? I, I couldn't agree with John Moore again, and the scientists involved, it's sort of a chicken or an egg situation. Were they there because they were actually involved in creating some of the incidents that we're talking about directly or indirectly, or were they there because these things were happening in this area, had a history of it? You might well want top-notch scientific minds on location to oversee, to try to fill you in on what was happening that was out of their control under uh, the management of these other intelligences, whomever they may be. Um, ultimately, we're all reduced to educated speculation here. The one thing is definite is we don't know exactly what happened and who was responsible for it. It becomes awfully, awfully complicated. We're just about out of time. John, you don't have a website or anything or any way for people to contact you if they have more information or just want to get in um, touch with actually, you. Actually, what we could do this. They could contact you, and, and you can get in touch with me if there's any questions or anything like that. Okay, so basically, if you click our contact link over at the Paracast forums at forum.theparacast.com, or you click our site, there's a contact space there, too. Send me an email. We'll get the email and say you want to forward this to John Burroughs. We're not going to read it. We'll just forward it to John Burroughs and let him check it out. Peter, where do we get a hold of you? You don't have a uh, website. Well, I will have one probably by sometime this autumn. In the meantime, anybody can contact me uh, through the Paracast site. Uh, or I have a page on Facebook, but um, I will certainly respond. And uh, every piece, every legitimate piece helps us all to get a clearer bead on, on what we're facing here. Now, with the book Left at Eastgate, does all this other stuff encourage you to want to do a sequel book? Um, no, except that... I mean, it ate up a decade of my life, and not in a very good way in many respects. Um, I went bankrupt. I was obsessed. Um, it, it changed me during the course of the time in ways that I was less than pleased by. I'm, I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish and to get the book published here and in the UK. Um, I continue to speak on it. In fact, when I give conference organizers a choice of 10 topics, 
this one will come up more often than anyone. I'm doing three or four talks on updates on Rendlesham between now and the end of the year. Um, this one is never going to go away, certainly not until we understand it, which in itself may never happen. Um, but it is the single most important case that we have on our docket as far as I'm concerned, and I, I say that with all due respect to my colleagues and important cases that they are associated with. Well, we're not going to rate those, except I could see that we've only chipped away a little bit of that big iceberg, the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. John Burroughs, Peter Robbins, thank you both so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. I'm sorry, thank you for having me, and please, anyone that had any involvement, no matter what it was, please come forward. We could really use that information. Uh, I second that emotion, and John, a pleasure spending some time with you on the air. I hope we uh, get to spend some time in real life. I'll send your best wishes to Larry when I speak to him later this week, and looking forward to uh, my next appearance on the show. Yes, thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.